Let's turn now to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and we'll read from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, verse 32. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have not so learned Christ. It's what we read and considered last time in connection with uh, in, uh, verse 20. You have not so learned Christ so as to continue in this life of unbelief, without God, without hope in the world, following the pattern of thinking and behavior of the nations of this world that do not know God, you have learned Christ. And that means a decisive break uh, with the life, the identity of the old self, uh, the old sinful nature, the old man. If anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We read in 2 Corinthians 5. And yet, in the Christian life, we are called to become who we are. In other words, we are called to live consistently and live more and more according to this new identity that we have in Christ as new people, the new man, the new man whom you have put on by faith, the faith that unites us to Christ who died and who rose again, to whom we are united in his death and in, resur in his resurrection, so that our old nature has died to sin and we live unto God as united with a living Savior. Now, we began to look at that last time. We be began to uh, look at that in what we might call the big picture frame, where we heard the exhortation to no longer walk according to the corrupt life of those without Christ. 
but positively, rather with a renewed mind and with fitting conduct, we are to walk in true righteousness and holiness according uh, to our recreation in the image of God, in Christ. But then the question is, well, what does that really look like? What what does that mean in detail? Uh, what specifically does the new man in Christ uh what does he do? Uh, what does he say? How does he feel? In our text, we might say, uh, zooms in then for a closer look at uh, the new man. And it, uh, in rather rapid fire, uh, imperatives, that is one command after another, uh, we're given these practical, uh, directives concerning how we are to live as those who are made new in Christ. Our, our theme expresses it this way, put on the hands, words, and heart of the new man. Because this description of our text concerning the new man uh, speaks of this new man in terms of his activities and his words and and even his deepest motivations and feelings of the heart. Put on the hands, words, and heart of the new man. And we're going to look at the details of our text, but before we do that, we we need to step back a little bit yet and, and make sure that our camera is in focus, you might say, so that we're clear on some very important things about something of the structure of this of this passage before us. We want to look at some of the general features of the life of the new man, first of all. And uh, there are three things that we need to give special attention to. They're found throughout the text, but we need to zero in for a moment on their significance as they really hold before us the pattern of Christian living. And that pattern involves a life of putting off and putting on. Our text uses that language. It uses the language of putting away specific things. But the pattern then involves the negative as well as the positive. The pattern involves don't do this, rather, instead, do that. And we're confronted here even by this direct uh, counsel with respect to the negative side of the Christian life, the kind of things we need to fight against and get rid of. We're confronted with the reality of the presence and working of the old man yet. The sinful nature has not been uh, eradicated altogether. It is not destroyed all at once. The fact is that the desires and the, the habits of the old nature run deep. The habits of, of sin, original sin, they run so very deep. That sinful nature is not abolished. It is not uprooted, as the Belgic Confession says. We considered that yesterday in this men's group, that our sinful nature is not abolished and uprooted even by baptism, referring to regeneration. You may be born again, but that doesn't mean that you're done with sin. It still lists, exists in you. It's like a, it's, it's like a, a, a corrupted spring that continues to boil forth. Genuine converts find that these sins that they once lived in still raise their ugly head 
and the ways of the world in which they once walked still threaten to entice them and to allure them into old habits, old ways of thinking and acting. The best Christian in this life is not free of the flesh and the need to fight against sin, the sin that yet remains in our lives. Now, the Bible never says, just stop it. But the Bible does say, stop it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we never outgrow our need to hear such things. We never outgrow our need to hear such exhortations as we have in Romans 8, which says, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. This this calling to to mortify, to put to death the sinful nature remains. And that's the first thing we need to see. But in that connection, we need to see also that uh, the Christian life, in fact, that's actually point one of the first thing we need to see. And the second thing is that the Christian life is not just negative. It's not just get rid of this and don't do that. It involves putting off the old man, but always together along with that, it involves putting on the new man. These things are inseparable. Every every vice has its opposite virtue. We're called to conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ, who hated wickedness, but loved righteousness. His life was not simply characterized by the avoidance of what is evil, but it was characterized by positively doing good and showing good. And so becoming like Christ is more than avoiding sins. The fact is there's no real putting off without at the same time putting on. You know that even secular counselors uh, realize the, the necessity of replace replacing bad habits with good ones. That's how they might put it. If alcohol is the love of your life, you can't just stop it. You've got to find something else. You've got to find something else to replace it. You know, even the world, wisdom of the world recognizes that, but they don't recognize the biblical pattern, which says things like, do not be drunk with wine and which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Replace this love of your life with something that is truly worthy of the love of your life. You can't just get rid of sin. You can't just stop doing things without replacing them with the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Christian life is a life of putting off and a life of putting on. We'll see that pattern in this text. In fact, you can find it throughout the New Testament. But secondly, in terms of uh, getting getting clarity of focus on some very important basic things, we consider that the life of the new man in Christ is a life of law-keeping, law-keeping through Christ. In our text, Paul, in effect, is going to quote the Eighth and the Ninth Commandment in a very succinct way. When he says, let him who stole steal no longer, in effect, he's repeating, thou shalt not steal, the Eighth Commandment. When he says, put away lying, he's speaking of a truth that's proclaimed in the Ninth Commandment. We're not to bear false witness. In fact, you could identify other specific directives and commandments that he gives in the following verses with 
particular commands of the law of God. And Paul wasn't afraid of quoting the law. He wasn't afraid if somebody's going to cry foul and say, oh no, that's, that's legalism. That's moralism to repeat God's commandments. We're no longer under the law. Well, that's what sometimes people will do when you quote commandments to them. We're no longer under the law. What do they mean by that? Well, if they mean that we're no longer under the curse and condemnation of the law, amen, thank God. In the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the law remains the perfect summary of what it means to love God supremely and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we're not out from under the authority of the law of God. We're not out from under the value of this succinct summary with all its rich spiritual meaning as a rule for Christian living of those who are seeking to be conformed to the image of God, especially as that's revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate law keeper, the ultimate lover of God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who loved his neighbor as himself. And so we're not at all intimidated. We're not at all afraid of, of reading the Ten Commandments every Sunday morning. We're not embarrassed by the imperatives of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament that direct us how we are to live according to God's commandments. The law is good, and we need to hear it. Christ purifies our aims indeed and empowers us to, to keep the commandments. Not perfectly, but genuinely and increasingly and to keep them in love for God and our neighbor, to keep them out of faith in Jesus Christ, to keep them as those who seek the glory of God and don't want to replace the law of God with the commandments of men and rules of righteousness that people tend to come up with as alternatives to God's law. The life of the new man is the life of law keepers in Christ. And then thirdly, it's a life that's lived as members together. Uh, the, the new man is not uh, the rugged individualist. The, the new man is not the lone soldier who doesn't really need anyone else, who is self-sufficient. The new man is not the lady who says, you know, I just prefer to be my myself. I don't need other people. I actually prefer my pets to people. No, the new man is not like that. The new man is a one another person. New people in Christ are one another people. Now, for some of us, that's easier uh, than others. There are personality differences involved in these things. But uh, grace, though it doesn't change our personality, it teaches us to grow when our personality would lead us into a conduct and an outlook that's contrary to the power and redeeming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever our preferences or personality, the grace of God is sufficient to help us grow also in relationships together. Important for us to consider that union with other people is just as much a part of being a new man as is union with Christ. Why is that? Well, because they're inseparable. We cannot be joined to the head and at the same time be joined to other members of the same body. They go together. 
Now, Paul will go on in this letter. He'll go on to talk about about our relationship with the world, that we are to be separate from the world. We're not to share in its sins. He'll go on to talk about marriage. He'll go on to talk about family life. He'll go on to talk about our life in the workplace. But the first pictures of the new man that he gives... They're all about what we might say social graces, not in a vague general way, but church social graces. Life together as God's people, as members of one another. Christ-like people in relationships with others, as dear children of God together, as members of the same body. Those are the reasons, those are the arguments that are repeatedly brought up in this passage in terms of why we're not to do this and why we are to do that. So those three things are important to just have this framework in mind, have uh, these convictions about the, the, the nature of new life in Christ. It involves putting off and putting on. It involves walking according to God's commandments. And it involves living together as members of Christ. But then that brings us, secondly, to look more specifically at at gracious practices of the life of the new man. Put on the hands, the words, the heart of the new man. Beginning with hands, active hands that give instead of take away. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Now we're reminded here, aren't we, brothers and sisters, that Christian living has to do with some very, very basic things, doesn't it? Things like going to work or doing your work at home, doing what you may be capable of, however limited that might be. Now that might not seem to be very holy and righteous. That might not really stand out in our minds as as uh, the characteristics of godly living. And for most people, it's not. Unbelievers, you know, they, they may work, they may work hard, they may work rather diligently, but in their case, it's not the outworking of, of what it means to be a new man in Christ. They have their own reasons and motivations that have nothing to do with the gospel. That ought not to be the case with us. Work is pleasing to the Lord when it's done in faith, when it's done in, in faithfulness in our own particular setting, our own calling, whatever that might be. And for some, it may, in fact, be evidence of a profound change in their whole way of life. We know that Paul was addressing this letter to all different classes of people and different classes of people, different kinds of jobs and positions they hold have their own particular temptations, right? The white-collar worker might be uh, tempted to steal in ways that are different than the servants that Paul addressed. So probably servants in the, in the home uh, of, of rather wealthy people. And it was quite customary. Well, you pilfer here, you take this and you take that. They're not going to miss it. They're rich. They don't need it. I don't get paid. I can understand why I can uh, help myself to some things here and there. But the gospel enters the lives of such people. And they're taught, no, to steal no longer. And even their work itself is to be uh, motivated by other considerations that never once entered into their heads before. 
when giving to help others for Jesus' sake becomes an actual motivation to work? I mean, that's how it's placed here. Let him labor with his hands so that he might have something to give to him who has need. It's not only beneficial if we're able to provide for ourselves so that we don't depend on others, but God's word holds out even even a, a higher motivation. Giving instead of taking away. A new creation can produce such a change. Active hands that give instead of take away. Gracious words that build instead of tear down. We've already seen uh, how important our speech is. You know, the church, as we've seen in this chapter earlier on, is built up, it's edified how? By the members speaking uh, truth to one another in love. Very important way in which the church is built up, built up. And in our text, we see that words, speech, uh, is a defining uh, characteristic of the new man. Truth telling must replace lying. Uh, we've seen in verse 14 of this chapter that lying doctrines tend to toss the body about. Uh, by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and deceitful plotting. Our text this morning teaches us that lies tend to to break down the body. We might say they tend to dismember the body. Putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And truth builds the body, but lies, they they divide it. They harm it. Verse 31, that list of uh, character uh, of sins, it forbids uh, among them evil speaking. Well, that's slander. But when you look at the rest of these sins uh, here in, in verse uh, 31, uh, just, just ask, how, how many of them become evident? Um, how many of them are heard in the form of words? Bitterness? Well, how do you confront bitterness? Often with bitter words, right? Clamor? A clamorous heart is evident in clamorous speech. Wrath? Anger? Malice? Well, sometimes these can exist in the heart where people get pretty good at covering it up, right? The Bible warns against, against smooth and flattering speech while there's hatred of, in the heart. That can happen, but how often do these things become evident in malicious speech or uh, wrathful, angry, angry words? And these are the things that defile. They're corrupting things. They defile ourselves. They, they corrupt others. So rather than such speech, we're to speak gracious words. Positively, the truth must be spoken, and it must be spoken with a view to building others up. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it might impart grace to the hearers, that it might serve to uh, impart grace through words of encouragement or uh, words of instruction, sometimes correction perhaps, words of comfort. Gracious words that build instead of tear down. And then thirdly, tender hearts 
that forgive instead of hate. You know, Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as we look at this passage and consider hands and and words, we ought not to neglect um, the heart. Because the heart of is often the the heart of the matter. In verse 32, we read, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3 uses similar language where it describes these things as those which we are to, to put on. It uses that language explicitly, where it says, As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Yes, we must uh, seek to put off uh, these uh, heart sins that this passage also describes there in verse 31. Because however skilled people might be with hiding them, God sees them, and we know that. It's also true that if we, we give the old nature an opening and we don't seek to address the root of the matter, uh, he will take advantage of that. He takes the opening. The, the devil uh, often gets a foothold. Anger is not all necessarily sinful. This passage is clear on that, where it says, be angry, but then it says, and sin not. And don't uh, let the sun go down upon your wrath, nor give place to the devil. In other words, don't don't let anger control you, even if it is righteous and legitimate. you got to be careful that you don't harbor it, it doesn't get out of hand. You don't nurture it because the devil will take advantage of that. Instead, put on the new man, the new man whose heart is, is affected and softened, whose heart is moved by considerations that this cruel world doesn't know. And our text really zeroes in on those in a couple of places, and there are two that are just so crucial. And the first one goes like this. I am a great sinner. And I've been forgiven a great debt. And I've been forgiven a great debt at a great cost. Because the Lord Jesus Christ suffered. And he died in order to forgive my sins. In order to wipe my guilt clean. That I might be accepted in God's sight. And remembering that great mercy that God has shown to me, I must find it in my heart to forgive my brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters who share themselves this same grace of God. Their sins have been forgiven by God. We share that amazing love and mercy and how that ought to open up hearts of mercy and forgiveness towards one another. That's the first thing. And the second thing uh, goes like this. I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He dwells in us. And he gives us the assurance of heaven. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the, uh, the day of redemption. And if we are grievous to one another, 
we grieve the Holy Spirit who dwells in us as a body. When it says grieve not the Holy Spirit, it's not just a, it's not in the singular. It's, it, it's in the plural. It's, a, it's an address to the people of God. To have a care that the Holy Spirit is not grieved in the way the members of the body treat one another. We're on the way to heaven together. And it should matter to us that if we are characterized by unkindness or anger or evil speaking or those things that are described here, that that grieves the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is grieved, well, the influence, the gracious influences and workings of the Holy Spirit are withdrawn. Don't you feel that in your own life? It's hard to pray with a heart of anger. And the Holy Spirit will withdraw his influences where we are careless about such things. And so how this provides us also a motivation to be careful, to repent of our sins, to remember the common grace, that special grace that we share in common as a forgiven people, as a people that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. At the risk of sounding Irreverent because it's an expression that is often used in a way that takes the Lord's name in vain. I'll still use it in its proper meaning. And that is for the love of God. Put on the hands and the, the words and the heart of the new man. Amen.